Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera and everything in between. If you have a piece of hunting gear or a piece of hunting equipment that needs a battery, Interstate Batteries has got you covered. You can go to a local retail store or you can go visit online at interstatebatteries.com. They have thousands of local retail shops all over the U.S., so you can go there as well. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bear. On this episode, I'm joined by my friend Chris Powell of the Houndsman XP podcast. He was on his way back from Arizona, headed back to Indiana, stopped by our Northwest Arkansas global headquarters, and we had a very interesting conversation. Chris is a he's a retired game warden, conservation officer. And so we spend quite a bit of the podcast talking about law enforcement, wildlife related law enforcement, and he had some incredible stories. Chris was also a dog trainer for law enforcement purposes. And so we go into quite a bit of that and we talk about hound or dog noses, their, their ability to smell. And we translate that into the hunting context. So we do talk quite a bit about hounds and talk about how hounds smell, but it comes from his knowledge and, and experience in training these dogs drug dogs and wildlife related law enforcement dogs so super interesting 
I want to draw your attention to our friends at the Western Bear Foundation. As many know, the grizzly bear population has exploded in Wyoming, Montana, and parts of Idaho. And the Western Bear Foundation is trying to help develop and have a voice inside the management plans for grizzly and black bear. The Western Bear Foundation is dedicated to the protection and development of bears, bear habitat, and bear hunting in the Western United States. Check out our friends at the Western Bear Foundation. We're at the Bear Hunting Magazine Global Headquarters today, and I've got with me a, a gentleman that has become a good friend of mine, but today's actually the first day that we've shaken hands. Yep, a lot of phone conversations. Yes. I've got Chris Powell with me here. Yep. Chris is Chris is the host with Steve Fielder on the Houndsman XP podcast, and so Chris is a big houndsman. And he's just now coming back through Arkansas to from Arizona. I wanted to stop by here. I had, yeah. to, I had to come back through Arkansas. You had to. You stop know, at the global headquarters. Chris, they say, I've done a lot of history research on Arkansas as a state and like the pioneer times and how it was homesteaded. Right. And Arkansas is basically on the way to nowhere. And so the only people that showed up here were bandits and outlaws and those who were indebted and distressed. Yep. And so if you're hauling dogs from Indiana all the way out to chase bears in Arizona, you might qualify as like in that category of like, I don't know. Well, I called my wife when I talked to my wife the other day, uh, she asked me how it was going. and, And I told her, I said, well, I've got everything I need with me. You know, so I could literally stop anywhere. I got all my all my hunting gear, yeah. all my dogs. Yeah, I'm I'm just freewheeling right now. Freewheeling. She said, "What about me?" And I said, "If you want to meet me somewhere, we're good." Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you're you're. I'm glad that you stopped by today. First of all, oh, I, I, is this actually on the way through? I mean, would you come yeah, I, through this right in here? I came within 40 miles north of you on the way out. So okay. I think. Give you or went take. through Joplin or yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. You would have come right pretty close through here, yeah. through West Fork, Fayetteville so, area. Well, you have an opportunity to stop at the Bear Hunting Magazine World Headquarters. You don't pass it. Yeah. Out. So Chris has got his. Uh, he's got his side by side with his new dog box, aluminum dog box built on the back, which is really cool. Got the hounds tied out out front. Yeah. And uh, we recorded a whole other intro to this podcast. <laughs> before my dog that's in here right now, my fern walked over the cords, pulled our, all our equipment off the table, and crashed all our stuff on the ground. So we're, we got a good start here, Chris. Hey, we're starting over. Let's do it. We're starting over. But no, so what we're going to talk about, or what I want to talk about with you, is I do want to talk about hound stuff. I want to talk about the Hounds and XP podcast. And I want to talk to, I want to learn a little bit more about you chris chris okay. is a retired game warden so chris is uh you're young to be retired i am how old are you 35 no i'm yeah yeah <laughs> thanks for that so no i just you almost turned, took me serious you're like no clay i'm not 35 yeah yeah no i just uh turned 50 in february man so when did you start when did you become a game warden? you had to have been young well, yeah when i was 21 years old okay yeah so you can retire after how long uh, it's kind of a confusing deal but uh you know, you have to have 25 years of service in okay. for uh, to get your insurance. So that's always a big. That's how right. they trap you, uh, yeah, yeah. and make you stay for that long. But 
you have to be 50 before you can start re, uh, drawing any retirement benefits. So okay. I had my time in for my insurance and then just had to wait a few minutes, to, few few months to start collecting my retirement funds. So I had another job opportunity as well. So it felt yeah. right. It was, yeah. it was the right time. Good. Well, that's when I see guys retire at a young age, I mean, I'd say that's super young to retire. It is. I think it's pretty yep. cool. Yeah, my grandfather retired when he was 50 uh, and had a successful floor covering business back in Columbus, Indiana. And and I didn't have any intention. Well, I'm still not retired. I mean, I've, I've got yeah. stuff going on between the podcast and, and uh, home renovation business. Then, then I stay pretty busy. So, yeah. Well, tell me about, well, I guess first tell me about how you got into hounds. Because that's that would be a pretty significant passion inside of your life as hounds. Right, and, right. And I don't know if I want to get into game warden stuff or hound stuff first. Let's save the hound stuff for last. Because once we get into hounds, we're going to roll into lots of different topics. Okay. But So 21 years old, you decided you wanted to be a game warden. Uh, I knew a long time before that. Well, Okay, here's my question. Okay. Did you do it because being a game warden was the only way that you knew how to work in the, quote, outdoor industry? Or were you truly interested in law enforcement? Or did you truly have this natural inborn desire as a young man to protect wildlife? Wow, that's complex. Um. (laughs) (laughs) You can just tell me why you did it. (laughs) You know, I guess it was a deal where I knew from a young age – I love to hunt. I love the outdoors. And we get, we get applicants all the time. I spent several years training recruits uh, for the department. And you always get people say, you, you ask them, why do you want to be a game warden? Yeah. And, and, uh, so you ask them that? In the, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you always ask them. Why do, you, why do you want to be a conservation officer? Well, I like to hunt and I like to fish. I love the outdoors. Well, there's a lot of people that do that. You know, why do you want to be a conservation officer? And it's kind of a lifestyle uh, type thing. It's, it's a deal where uh, I always said this. Conservation officers are, have a deep affection for the natural resources. You know, the, the same things that we're trying to go out and protect most of the time are the same, same areas that we recreate. You know, if I was a state trooper, you know, I don't, I don't recreate with meth. You know, but as a conservation officer, you recreate hunting, fishing, doing all those things. Yeah. And, it, and it becomes a lifestyle. It's not just a job. And um, one of the biggest things for me about being a conservation officer, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, giving you the 30,000-foot view right now. Yeah. Uh, the thing that I enjoyed the most was I had a job to do, and I was very serious about that job. But the underlying passion behind everything else was to protect honey you know yeah um, even from a young age yeah even when i was 21 years old yeah i mean it's law enforcement and and uh uh you have to do the law enforcement part and i and i did that aggressively uh but it was always with the underlying thought that you want to do something illegal, you are not representing me as a hunter. I see. Yeah. So that's that's how I always approached it. So mm. um, it wasn't to go out and, and hunt down the true sportsman and try to find something wrong. It was to protect the sport of hunting from poachers like that, and Chris. violators. Do you think that's 
common though? Because I, I, I don't know if it is. I think it is. I'm, you, you think know, it being, is? Yeah, being on the inside of law enforcement, there's very few people in my business, and I know them from East Coast, West Coast, all across the country, and the number one priority is to protect hunting. You know, yeah. um, biologists a lot of times are the same way. You know, they 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 get questioned a lot on the things that the, the decisions they make and rules processes and stuff, but they're trying to, the, to do the best thing for the resource and to represent sportsmen. Yeah, that's good. I like to hear that because, you know, you kind of have this, the general consistent consensus in the hunting community, I think would be kind of that game wardens, and I'm using the, I'm using the, the term that people would use if they were recognized. Yep. I would, get it. would, would say, would would feel some animosity towards them, even if they're law abiding. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. And, and in some sense, that's good in the hunting community to have the fear of God inside of you to obey the game laws, which I really strongly do. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I like I I am almost manic about obeying game laws. Not, I mean, just I, I just I'm always worried I'm going to make a mistake. You know. Yeah, and. And and because you make a mistake, you still get, you know, you 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 broke the law. One you know? of the one of the things you know, a person ought to be able to go out and and enjoy hunting without without the fear of making a mistake. Yeah. And there's there's there are legitimate reasons why you feel that way. Um, as an officer, when you when you pull up to a situation, we have no personal history with Clay Newcomb. You know, so we've got to be able to sift through that chaff and get down to to um, you know what the what's really going on here. Right. So you don't know if I'm a good guy or a bad guy. No, not at all. Yeah. You so know? you just got to deal with the information you have. Right. And this guy may have made a mistake, and you don't know if he did it on purpose or if he did it on accident or if yeah. he. You know what's what's really going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I was a supervisor for several years, and. And one of the worst mistakes that that officers make is they feel like they've got to make they've got to make cases to uh, uh, build their reputation among their peers okay. as officers. And it's not that it's competitive, but you don't want to appear to be lazy. You know, our our training are too soft. Yeah, are too soft. You know, yeah. uh, and get ran over. Uh, our training is very high. I mean, it's very high energy. It's very intense. We got a recruit class going on in Indiana right now, and uh, we have drill instructors in those classes, and we try to build character principles in these guys. And if you're lazy or you're a sluffer, you are not going to make it. You're mm-hmm. not going to become an officer in Indiana. Uh, and then that carries over into an officer's career where he wants to be successful and he wants to you know build a good reputation among himself and i think a lot of times we get a little bit go down rabbit paths where we're trying to impress our peers rather than serve the sporting public yeah and so that i've been there i've done it but i used to tell my guys you know who needs who needs this ticket if you're going to write a ticket you better make sure that the situation warrants it does the does the sport does the the person you're arresting need that or do you need that right you know are you doing it for for them because you think that it's warranted or are you doing it for you because you want to boast your ego yeah so yeah it's a it's a slippery slope and when you're on the outside and you're looking into it and i know it's not a fair 
It's yeah. not a fair assessment. And I guess these I just guys le- are just doing their job. I just learned to live with it. Um, yeah. And, but I can't tell you the number of times I'm, I mean, I worked in the same area for, for 25 years and, uh, a lot of the people I arrested, I sat in church with some of the people I arrested, <laughs> you know, end up you went into to church with a rough crowd, man. <laughs> <laughs> I took a confession. The guy wanted to, uh, to meet me at the church to, to talk to me about an illegal turkey he shot. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if he felt like he could tell the truth there. It, he couldn't lie at church or what, but, oh, we know. but uh, yeah, he, so I did go to church with those guys and, and it's not like there was some great pleasure in, you know, making arrests. It, there is some satisfaction in knowing that you, you worked an investigation and yeah. you came down yeah, to you the did facts. Your job. You did your job. So yeah. it was it was satisfying. So Well, I like I, I've never thought of it from a position of that you are doing it in defense of hunting. Like that's I think that's really I like that. I yeah, like that's, that side of it. And it, we started the you know, as one of the founders of the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance in Indiana. Uh yeah. because hound hunters did not have a voice in Indiana. Uh, largely misunderstood. A lot of the laws that that were on the books and some still exist so were extremely antiquated. Mm. And with the tenure in the department, at the time we started the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance, we were able to effectively, you know, talk to talk to some of the people that I worked with every day and and get some changes made that that uh, opened up opportunities for people to be involved in hound sports in Indiana. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go straight to a question that that is like the like the uh, sensational question that like a ten year old would ask you. <laughs> Did you ever? Were you ever in the have to draw your gun or be in any kind of really serious, crazy situation while would, you were game wardening? Yeah, I was. I was in three deadly force situations in 28 years. Mm. Um, you know. It, were they wildlife related or drug related? Because I know one was wildlife related, two were drug and alcohol related. Okay. Um, conservation officers in Indiana are multitask. We're full. We're full law enforcement. Yeah. Um, anything that you could get pulled over on, uh, pulled over for on the interstate, a conservation officer could stop you in Indiana and, for, and do tra- that same traffic job. violation. Absolutely. Really. Um, if it's a matter. And, and most of the time, it's a deal where if it's a matter of public safety, you know, we'll go right. ahead and do it. If we see a drunk driver going down the road in front of us on the interstate, uh, we've still taken an oath to to protect the public and yeah, to yeah. let him go. But anyway, three deadly force situations in, in 28 years. One was uh, a, a deer camp situation where um, some guys from out of state were in our area. And they had some illegal deer. We had some information that they had illegal deer. And we were, um, I was actually a canine handler at the time. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, we ran, I ran a, a, a multi-purpose tracking dog wildlife detection. What, evidence br- what breed was it? She was a Labrador. Really? Labrador retriever. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, like an attack type dog. No, it was a drug no. sniffing dog. No, it was not a, it was not a protection trained dog. Okay. So... We had information that were illegal deer in this camp. And uh, uh, the camp was behind the man's daughter's residence. 
so you've got some curtilage issues there, but we got permission to go up there and look around. And we suspected that the deer was away from camp, so I had my dog, got her out, and while I'm getting the dog out, then she went and let out her 160-pound bull mastiff. Mm. And uh, automatically that dog keyed in on my dog and was trying to, I mean, when he wrapped, the dog was standing 30 feet away from me, see the dog, and I said, you need to tie your dog up. And she ignored me. She made a half effort to grab the dog. She knew why she turned that dog dog out. Mm. And she didn't know what it would do, whether it would be me or or my dog. But So the dog charges us. And then mm. at 30 feet, dog wraps my left leg. As soon as it's wrapping my left leg, I shoot the, shoot the dog. Have mm. to kill their dog right in their driveway. Wow. Knew I plowed it. Um, at the same time, dad's standing over there and he picks up, or he, he pulls you by yourself. Or do you have other people with you? The, my partner was down, had another officer there. He was down the hill. Okay. So he hears a gunshot and he's, he's coming up in his truck at that point. Well, dad pulls a straight, straight knife out of his sheath. And so now I've got a dead dog and I've got another threat and, he decided that wasn't a very good idea. So that, that resolved itself. Uh, the other two were drug-related. Had a, uh, the last one was a, a guy that was strung out on meth and uh, came in. The call came in as a, as a suspicious vehicle, stranded motorist type thing. When I arrived on scene, I could tell he was wigged out and uh, sitting right in front of my friend's house in, the, in my community. Oh, wow. Uh, turned into a fight. The fight went to the ground. Once the once he starts pulling on your gun, then the fight changes. Uh, so he's trying to get my gun out of my holster, and my friend's wife was standing there, and she pulled her own pistol and shot and killed the guy. Wow. Yeah. So um, been a little bit of excitement over 28, 28 years. So a civilian woman bystander. Mm-hmm. Holy yep. cow. Yep, shot him and killed him. Uh, when when she shot while you guys are on the ground oh yeah she must have been a good shot she she was capable familiar with her with her was there was that i mean everything was okay with that with the law i mean like she was justified yeah. you know the the they tried to file civil suits on that and yeah. wrongful death suits and they named everybody from the governor down to people that weren't even there to ex sheriffs and all kinds of stuff in the community uh and they tried to sue her personally, and they weren't successful in doing that. In fact, this last year, Indiana passed a uh, uh, an assisted citizens uh, uh, law where it protects citizens that are coming to the aid of law wow. enforcement. So there was actually legislation that came out of that. Wow, that's intense, man. Yeah, that was that was pretty intense. Like we <laughs> like we say, that was pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Well, so but you're not. I've got a buddy Brent Reeves who's uh he's he's still in law enforcement but he's not working in the field anymore. Okay. And so he says every time I say, "How you doing, man?" and he says, "I'm doing great. Nobody's shooting at me today." Yeah. So that that's that like, you know, his thing is as long as nobody's shooting at me, it's a good day. Right. So nobody's shooting at you anymore. Nope. Nope. Not lately. Not lately anyway. Yeah. Didn't they didn't shoot at you in Arizona? No. No, we got out of there without any without uh, any shots fired at anybody. Yeah, well, no, that's always that's really interesting stuff. 
Um, you're now you're uh, so were you a dog trainer? Mm-hmm. So you trained this dog. Now this dog would have. You, hey, you never told us what happened. Did, you, did they find the deer? No, there was no deer in camp. And after after that, the deal with the the mastiff and everything going on that became a secondary type thing. Okay. Uh, there was some circumstantial evidence, but the deer was ultimately, I'm sure, became a Lacey Act violation when it got transported back to Ohio. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But you were, so you trained that dog? Uh-huh. Yeah, I did. Wow. So it was a drug dog? Uh, I, wildlife detection. Wildlife detection Yeah. Dog. And what that means is, uh, you know, if you see a checkpoint, some of the things that we did, like um, uh, walleye, you know, we would set up a, uh, a wildlife checkpoint and we'd catch people with coming back with anywhere from two times a daily bag limit to somebody that was selling to a restaurant in Cincinnati, you know, for, for so walleye. So that dog could smell fish inside of a cooler? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no problem. Could you tell it which species of fish you needed? No, no. You have to cross. You have to cross train them. It's not like any hit I get. Well, you got to have a target species, and you got to do some some training on that. But but it would have picked up if there had been deer meat in there. It would have. She would have alerted. alerted. She would have alerted on so that. So just yeah. any any kind of organic meat or not any, necessarily or, I mean, organic matter was what I meant. She would not hit on beef, but she would hit on deer. No way. Oh yeah, yeah. That's how sensitive a dog's olfactory system is. And and you just set them up. What was know? her cue that you knew she was keying in? She would scratch. She would scratch at the at the cooler. Probably the best thing that scratch she was, it. you know, was for fire, uh, finding firearms evidence. Like, okay. uh, and we did everything from uh, murders to fish and wildlife cases. Huh. You know, so um, shotgun wad scattered somewhere out in a ten acre field. Like, yeah, would she know if you went up to a truck what you were looking for? No. So if she f- smelled burnt shell casings, she would alert that. Mm-hmm. She would alert deer meat. She would alert fish. Right. So just anything. So you might dig in there and find some shotgun shells, and that's not what you're worried about. No, she wouldn't. She wouldn't hit on like a standard unloaded shotgun shell. Most of the time, the firearm stuff was done out in the field. You know. Okay. We've got to put the pieces of the case together. Okay. Where yeah. This- where did he shoot the deer? Where right. is the shell casing on the ground? Do you, yeah. Do, would you just free cast her? Yeah, just, I just like free turn? cast her, and She'd- and she would quarter the field, and uh, as soon as she found it, bang, she was on it. She could find firearms underwater. No way. Oh yeah. Yep. Did it several times in in underwater. Mm-hmm. She found how a- is that scent is traveling up through mm-hmm. the water and escaping at the surface of the water. Well, you know, it comes up and then and then gun oils and burnt powder residue come down and then they get lodged around the the rock or along the edges and and uh, she locates the firearm in the water like that. That's crazy. One of the most interesting. I mean, it's kind of kind of a dark story, but but. Uh, we were looking for a missing person one time and uh, uh, found a found a spot on the edge of this waterfall with a deep hole of water in it. And there was a note and some sleeping pills set up there. And uh, I had her on a tracking in a tracking harness and she kept jumping in the water. And it was kind of warm, you know, and the handler is always the weakest link. 
Okay. The yeah. dog knows what it's doing. And yeah. the main rule of canine handling is to trust your dog. She kept jumping and I reel her in like a fish. And, you know, I've got policemen all the way, you know, I've got other officers all the way around me and here my dog's wanting to swim. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, this stupid dog. You know, the third time she jumped in, when she jumped in, she, she churned up the jacket of this woman oh, no. that was in this deep hole of water. And wow. one of the guys, like I said, they were, we were by a waterfall, and one of the other a deputy was standing up on the ledge, and he could see down in there. And he goes, there's something in there. There's a jacket. And uh, sure enough. So it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing what a dog is capable of smelling. You know, when we smell, when we walk into a house, your wife's cooking dinner, or maybe she's cooking beef stew. You know, we walk in, it's like, Oh, beef stews, you know, we're going to have beef stew. When a dog walks in there, they smell water, they smell carrots, they smell beef, they smell pepper. Right. You know, they their brains are wired to uh, discriminate different types of scent. Yeah. And, and that's why we're capable of breaking our hounds from deer, um, any unwanted game, yeah. possums. Yeah. You know, and focus that in. Yeah. Man, that's incredible. And, you know, the I heard somewhere on a podcast – just recently where they were saying that there were cadaver dogs that were smelling stuff like 30 feet under the water, stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is just insane. Yeah. Well, hey, this is a good place for us to step into hound stuff. Yeah. Talking about noses and stuff. I, You know, as a, as a I'm not going to say a new houndsman because I've hound hunted a long time, but there was an experience I had with that dog sitting at your feet uh, when she was a pup. It was a misty, rainy. You know, I just remember the the screen on my GPS was beaded with water, <laughs> and uh, it was cool. It was a just kind of a mild fall night, but I remember I was leading Fern out, and she started bobbing her head up and down. Mm-hmm. Just bob, you know how they do, just testing the wind. Right. And I wasn't going to turn her loose right there, but and you know she was probably a year and a half old or something, and I just. Said I might as well, so I just turned her loose, and she went on a beeline, three hundred yards in a straight line, and located. Never let out a bark on the ground, and located. And there was a coon in a tree, and I know it was a layup coon. Sure. And I, I, that absolutely, and I mean, there's lots of dogs that can do that kind of stuff. So it's not. I mean, a sure. hound can do that. Right. But it, I was just amazed. And I mean, hounds do that kind of stuff all the time. But for whatever reason, the way it all played out, it was just real clear to me that from 300 yards away, she smelled that coon sitting in a tree. Yeah, scent, scent a lot of times is a misunderstood, even among houndsmen. Yeah. You know, um, we know how to operate GPSs. We know how to, we know how to, uh, do a lot of technical things with social media. You know, you can stream a live video from a tree right into social media now. And, and uh, probably the most misunderstood thing is the most important thing, and that's that dog's nose. Yeah. And a lot of people figure it out by, by just experience. Uh, but they still – scent is such a technical – it's physiological. It's it's air currents affect it. Humidity affects yeah, it. That's a big factor, um, isn't it? Yeah. So you know, if you get a, a day or a night where the wind didn't blow, but it's real humid, that dog will never smell that coon in that tree, right? Because the scent actually gets suspended in the air where their nose can't reach it. Yeah. And and you get a little breeze kicks up, 
and boom, it drops it down there where they can smell it. And now yeah. they can work with it. Um, I just had this conversation in bear camp about, you know, hunting on snow. You know, a lot of times people get confused and they think that, that hounds are tracking. They have to track in the track itself in deep snow. Right. You know, because you'll see a hound stick his nose down in each track. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times what's happened is that that body that is a living organism and it sheds cells every second. Every second that it's alive, it's, it's shedding cells, and that's called scurf. When we exhale... Say that again. Scurf. Scurf. Yeah, it's called scurf. It's actually just... Shed cells that your body's shedding. Okay. You know, Microscopic shell cells. Yeah, you can put you can put hundreds of them under a microscope and and see them. Um, and we've actually done and that. That is what scent is. That's what it is. That's so that's coming off the animal and it's interacting with its environment. Yeah. To give it what what's called a scent picture for the dog. Yeah. Um, so as soon as it hits the ground, it's decomposing and <clears throat> like you can have several scent pictures from where we're looking right now. You know, underneath these shade trees. It's not going to dehydrate as quick, so it's going to be more uh, prevalent here underneath the shade trees, and it's going to last longer. But the same same pimp, scent picture is going to going to change when we get down there to your driveway, where the sun can hit it mm. and it's dry. Okay. Um, wind can actually affect it and bank yeah. it, bank it. You know, make it bank against vegetation. Um, uh, in the case of the snow track, like I was telling you, you know, the the wind comes along and it's like anything else. Where is it going to go? It's going to go in the deepest part. It's going to flow to that hole in the snow. Because it's an actual physical particle. Yes. It has mass. Absolutely. So it's going to, it's going to drop. Yep. I mean, it can be suspended. I mean, obviously, scent mm-hmm. can be high, but it's going to have a tendency, if there's no things pulling it up, to drop. Right. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's going to deposit in those tracks. You know, you get a dog, you get a jump race where a bear or a lion or whatever just takes off, you know, they're leaving a scent plume behind them. Yeah. So that's why those dogs lift their heads, beeline they can, it they out. They don't even have to put their nose on nope. the ground. Nope. And it, you got a dog that is putting they're, their nose they're on They're smelling the... just like a tunnel of scent. Yep. Yeah. Yep. They're in that plume. It's called a plume coming off of them. Plume. Yep. And they okay. just, boom, they hit it. Uh, and... These terms that you would have learned training mm-hmm. training uh, law enforcement dogs. Yeah. Because this I, is not terminology I hear houndsmen say. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, I started hound hunting when I was 13 years old and saw a lot of things over the, the years. And I went through canine trainer school. Um, I'm going to say I was probably mid to late 20s Okay. when I started that. Okay. And when we started talking about these things, I kept getting these flashbacks of different things I'd seen as a houndsman. Right. So I'd been able to take my experience and put it with my training and then be able to talk about it. And explain what's going on. Um, there are thousands of houndsmen out there right now. They've learned all this without, you know, a dummy like me, I need to be able to see it in print, you know, and, yeah. and look at it and put my hands on it and touch it. You know, there's thousands of houndsmen out there that, that have figured this out just on experience, 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 just being in the woods and, and being able to collect all this data without any kind of system to it at all right. you know it's kind of anecdotal data yeah you know just what they've experienced absolutely and what they've come to conclusions on yeah one of the one of the examples i always use when i was a i was probably 15 i didn't have my driver's license yet and i was riding with an older houndsman and a coon crossed the road in front of us i've yeah. got a pup in the truck you know and what's every every kid want to do you turn see it a loose coon, turn it loose and the older houndsman says 
dog won't be able to run it. What do you mean it won't be able to run it? We just saw it cross the road. Yeah. Uh, he goes, we're going to go down to the next intersection. We'll turn around. We'll come back. And then we'll see if you're, if you're pup. We know right where it went. Yeah. And I'd done it a hundred times. Was too dumb to realize, you know, I couldn't figure out what was going on. Right. So, you know, I'm thinking this is crazy. You know, we might as well turn this pup loose now. Yeah. And we come back down the road, put the hound on the ground, takes the track the right way, ends up treeing the coon. And I asked him why. Why did that happen? And he said, he said, I don't know, but I've done it enough that I know it does. <laughs> you know? Man, I wanted to interrupt you so bad just to say that's been my experience 100%. And I've never had anyone be able to tell me why. So I'm hoping you know why. Yeah. Okay, so even the a, – a dog, canine's natural – their natural instinct is try to find their scent picture on the ground. You know, if you look at a dog's natural tracking pose, then it's nose it's, on the ground or four or five inches. Yeah. Off the ground. You know, somewhere down here, their heads always canted down at their shoulders and they're picking up that track. Well, even a raccoon with the scent plume, that, it, that scent is suspended in the air until it has time to settle. Well, what about the ground scent? It's leaving with pads on the ground. Pads are very, very minimal. Really? So they, it's not leaving that much scent with actually what it's touching on the ground. Even us, if you try to get a, if you try to get a, okay, so a, if you, a, a trailing dog to trail us out through there, he wouldn't be trailing based upon what was on the bottom of our shoes. No. Is that what you're telling me? Exactly. Okay. So, or even the bottom of your feet or on your hands. When you, when they do a swab, if you do a DNA swab of yourself, where do they scrape? Your mouth, right? Inside your mouth. Yeah. How come they don't? How come they don't scrape your hands? Nothing there. You're using them all the time. Yeah. So the residual, the residual cells that are coming off your body are pretty minimal, right there. I mean, if you handle something long enough, it'll it'll yeah. be there. But, okay. But animals are walking on their feet all the time, so those pads are tough. So there's not a lot of transfer there, but the animal exhaling, uh, he's brushing up against brush. Hairs all cells. You know, so yeah. when they go through brush, it knocks those cells off of there. They become suspended okay. in the air until they settle. So you're you're telling me the reason they can't correctly run that coon track. Now, they can smell it. Oh, yeah. But they can't it's course all, it. What's a pup do when you turn loose on, a, on something fresh like that? It usually goes the wrong way. Or it just, I mean, I've seen them just running just around. Confused. They got their heads high. Yeah. They're trying to figure it out, figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. Whereas if you wait 5, 10, 15 minutes, the scent settles on the ground, but okay. I can take it. Man, I, I'm thinking of two exact scenarios with that dog right there where we saw a coon cross the road, and I just dumped her out. Yeah. She didn't treat either one of them. Yeah. And and sounds like I might have contradicted myself because I talked about a jump race and the, the scent plume. Yeah. So what happens there is a jump race – the adrenal glands let loose, so now we've got a different type of scent in the picture. Okay, so you're saying they're leaving more scent. Mm-hmm. Huh. Once an okay. animal knows it's being pursued, then it, then they'll start dumping more scent. Something happens. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And humans do the same thing. Now I'm surprised in the in the in the world of uh just wild animals that there hasn't been some adaptation where an animal doesn't leave any scent like young fawns okay 
Young fawns okay, leave yeah. very little scent. Yeah. You know, a lot of times hounds will walk right up on them and, and won't even know they're there until – and that's just natural So there is, there is something defense. like that inside of – But some of the old timers will tell you that, you know, they'll see a coon out in the field or an animal out in the field and, and the coon will pick up its scent as a natural defense. That's not right. It's impossible to do. You just yeah. – you know, it's not like, oh, there's a hound. I'm going to pick up my scent and run away. Oh, I see what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah. 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 That could be some of that anecdotal evidence that – Right. The conclusion was totally wrong. Yep. He see you know, the houndsman sees that he's not successful there, but but he he hasn't put it all together yet. Yeah. And that's the benefit that's the benefit of I had as a as a trainer. You yeah. know, once you understand that, have you ever seen a wind you have, you've seen wind checkers that yeah. bow hunters use. If you look at that wind checker, you know, the the, the little puff bottle. Right. That's the thing. Your body's doing that all the time when you Just exhale. releasing scent. All the time. Yeah. And you'll get areas that are scent-saturated. You know, if a bear lays down and he, he's, he's bedded down, yeah, he's saturating that whole area with scent. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of my pet peeve with uh, whitetail hunters and big game hunters about human scent. Okay? You know, the whole, there's this whole market about scent control. Oh, yeah. And... My dad, well, I don't want to get into it. My dad's big into scent control with whitetails, and I get it. You can't kill a whitetail if he smells you. Right. So this has nothing to do with my dad. This has to do with this idea that if your clothes are clean, that a deer can't smell you. Mm -hmm. And what I always say is a deer could care less whether your clothes are clean. He's smelling you. Yeah. I mean, he's smelling the human inside those clothes. Right. And you're constantly emitting odor. You're constantly, uh, you know, you're sweating, you're passing gas out of all orifices of your right. body. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Like, so, you know, so it's just funny to me that people think, well, if I've got a clean T-shirt and underwear and jean or, you know, hunting clothes right. that are scent-free, then a deer certain- can't sell, smell me. Now, obviously, it helps because if your shirt smells right. bad, they can smell it. But he's smelling you, man. Right. And we did some a lot of experimentation when when we first when I first become a became a handler, then it was when the big craze was for, okay. for scent control. What did you find? I'm intrigued. Okay, this is what we found. We would have people bring their scent control clothes out. Yeah, activated the whole nine yards, and we tracked them like they were naked. Tracked them just like they were wearing anything else. Okay. You know, it made no difference. Wow. Um, a lot of that stuff is marketing. But I also believe that um, when I put that dog on the ground, she's looking for one thing. She's looking for human scent to track that hunter. Um, when you have a deer walk through or an elk walk through, they're thinking about a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, Part of their attention is on predators. Part of their attention is on food. Part of their attention is, is on mating. You know, a rutting buck, yeah. you know, he's got, he doesn't have food on his mind, but he does have predators and he's got mate, you know, the yeah, breeding right. season on his mind. So he's not totally focusing on that. So you can get a lot, get away with it. So maybe it's that. not a totally unbiased test. We're using a, a dog that's trained to detect human odor. Is that what you're saying? Right. But, but to think that you're going to eliminate your, your, your human odor is, the only way you can do it is if you're in a self-contained spacesuit. Yeah. Man, that's that's interesting hearing you say that from your own personal observations because I've heard I've heard that same story before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and perhaps scent killer could reduce human odor so that if a deer came through, he would 
not feel like the danger was as immediate as if you didn't have it. Perhaps, and that's the only benefit that I see from it. And I've gotten away, and I, I haven't gone on too many scent rambles. Yeah, it's I'm on a rabbit trail. I, I've all I do is hunt the wind for whitetails, and I've killed as many big whitetails as I ever did when I was paying attention. To, right. I'm serious. So, I, I almost ignore it, other than wind direction. Some of it's confidence too. So if you get a guy that that you know in his deepest recesses of his soul feels like that he yes. needs to take all these all these precautions on scent, he feels more confident, makes him a better predator. Yes. And exactly. So some of that is is got some some intrinsic values, I yes. guess. Yes. That then there's something true to that. And that's the way my dad is. My dad is so ritualistic with the way he hunts mm-hmm. and he had to be to be successful. And he was a really successful still is a really successful bow hunter for where he lives and what he's sure. trying to do. And that's just part of his routine, you know, and, and uh, you took you take that away from him and he doesn't even want to go hunting. Right. Like he's like, what's the point? And so it's like, hey, yeah. go ahead, do all that. That's great. I'm not going to. I'm just going to go hunt the wind. Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, I'm sure that there's times when, anyway, that's a different story. Scent good, is fascinating, though. Yeah, good hounds will hunt the wind, too, you yeah. know. Um, Tell they, tell they know how to use tell use tell me something else. I mean, to me, the how a hound uses his nose. Can you tell me something else about that? That would, I mean, every story that you've told and every has been really good. Yeah. Um, man, I don't know. I mean, you've got you've got the the. Well, ability. let me ask you a question. Okay. What's the ideal condition for a hound, and what's the worst condition? The worst conditions for a hound is what you would find in Southwest United States. Uh, you've got, we just interviewed Chris Todd for the Houndsman XP podcast. He was talking about, he lives in Kingman, Arizona. It's desert and it is extremely dry. They had a hundred days straight last year with no rain. Wow. Um, those are tough conditions to track in. If you're catching game in those conditions, you know, you're not hunting pot lickers. The the most amazing thing is though you take a hound from the southwest and you'll blow his mind in the Midwest with the amount of moisture and and will he do good? Sometimes it blows your mind. It's scent, you know it's too much scent. It's mm. overloaded. Mm. Um, I would like to try it sometime and see. But yeah. you'll hear you'll hear houndsmen talk about you know your dogs wouldn't be able to do that here. I took my dogs up there and they weren't able to do it. Northern Indiana, Southern Michigan, there's no, no, it can be tough at times, but there's a lot of coon there. And we, we tree a lot of coon up in that country. I live in the Southern part of the state, but you'll take a dog from someplace where there aren't as many animals on the ground. The population is, isn't as high and they just don't know how to, they don't know how to, to handle that scent overload. You know, it just blows their mind. Hmm. Um, but the the most so w- tell tell me the science behind why arid conditions are bad. Okay, so the we could we could recreate the same thing out here in your driveway if I if just like on my concrete getting pounded by the sun. Right. So so you know the scent would if a coon or whatever animal ran down this gravel road. And the sun. This is beat, a bear hunting magazine podcast, so let's say it's a bear. Chris. Okay, that's where it's coming right from. Right in my driveway. Yep, bear hunting magazine <laughs> podcast. A bear goes ripping down your road, gravel road. 
I need my dog to run that bear. Yeah. I've got bear tracks in the road. So I'm going to look at several things. I'm going to look about like the, the canopy in that area. Is it shaded? Because again, that, that scent is made up of in, individual cells that are deposited on the ground. Uh, if you take, if you take uh, uh, a grape and lay it out there on the ground in the direct sunlight, eventually it's going to shrivel up and become a raisin. Right. Okay, so that cell that your body is shedding when you're exhaling, it still has moisture in it. Okay. And when it falls onto arid conditions, it, it automatically starts dehydrating. Okay. So, so there's our analogy, grape to raisin. Yep. That's what the particles do. Yep. And a raisin's harder to smell than a grape. Yep. If you cut a grape open and you smell it, we can, you can smell, smell it. it. You tear a raisin apart and it doesn't smell like a grape anymore. Yeah. You know, has very little odor at all. So, you know, the, the, the track runs down through there and, and it's on the, on the direct sunlight laying in, in rock. It's so microscopic, though, that that, that will even blow up under rocks. So mm-hmm. even a piece of gravel... You know, it's shaded under that piece of gravel. It may have rained last night. And there's a little bit of moisture under there. Huh, so it so could, the dog, it could you'll do see better the, under there. Yeah, so you'll see a dog picking his way down through here, and you're like, I just saw the bear run through there 45 minutes ago, and my dog can't run it. It's because he's got to figure out where that scent is mm. to pick his way down through it. Mm. You know, you get a shower on that, a light shower on that, same, same scenario, and they'll run it like they're on fire. Now... Okay, talk to me about this. I've I've also heard and have experienced high humidity being one of the worst enemies of scent. So this would be the opposite end of the spectrum, because so explain to me that, and if you agree with that, yeah, since super high, like if it's eighty five degrees and one hundred percent humidity. I mean, yep. I found my dog struggle. Yep. So there's a lot of moisture in the air. What are the air currents doing? Is just dead. Yep. If it's that hot, it's just dead. So we're dealing with microscopic microorganisms here that are making this scent picture. Since a, a, every living being, we've got a scent plume coming off of us. It's it gets suspended in the air. Like the natu- your body has a natural thermal on it. Believe it or not, you know, you're walking through a world that's 85 degrees. Your body is 98.6. Your Mm. body's creating its own weather. Mm. (laughs) Um, So it's pluming off your body and it moves up. So the majority of your scent is being deposited off of the top of your head. Yeah. Not off, you know, not from the, the scalp, but it's just thermal movement up and it's pluming off the top of your head. Uh, We're like those little puffer bottles walking around everywhere we go. Right. So when you have high humidity, the moisture in the air is heavier than the microorganism, so it can't move down. Mm. You get a little bit of a breeze or an air current kick up. You know, it's just it's like a it's like a uh, uh, an air current or a, a a whirlpool type effect on that, and it'll deposit it on the ground. It'll deposit huh. it on vegetation. Huh. That makes sense. You know, it it, it seems like the humidity just kind of like disperses the scent. I, and that would be just totally anecdotal in the sense that just seeing what I, I've been, uh, I remember a couple of times when she was young, I turned around on what had to have been a hot track because I saw wet coon tracks on rocks. Right. I mean, just like that coon, and this is hot summer. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is in the wintertime, hot summer. And I mean, just struggled to just, just, I mean, she's just moving around, moving around. 
when and you were watching her, what were what was her natural tendency? What was she? Where was she looking for? She the was scent? Put, trying to put her nose on the ground, most right of down time. on the ground, because yeah. she did have a little bit of transfer onto the rocks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so she knows there's something here. Yeah, but without an air current or time for that to sift down through the the atmospheres right there. Yeah. And we're talking micro atmospheres. We're not talking 13 feet. Yeah, yeah. You know, just micro. She's looking for that. She she can pick up part of the scent out of those wet coon tracks because there is some transfer, but the majority of the the scent coming off of that animal just hasn't settled yeah. where she can track it yet, where she naturally wants to try to find that track. What about best case scenario? What's the best trailing conditions? Temperature and moisture. I personally like hunting um, with a little bit of a breeze, humidity above 50%. Uh, but below below seventy five, part of that's for my personal comfort. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, you know, directs if you're bear. I hunting. mean, is there much difference between like sixty degrees and thirty degrees? I mean, in a dog's ability to trail, that really probably wouldn't be, would there? Not a whole lot. It more it's more dependent on the amount of sunlight that's hitting that track. Okay. The uh, amount of moisture in the ground. Yeah, it's it's like a big picture type thing that you've got to dissect the different parts. Yeah. So, you know, you get into an area, an overcast day, the where, and it's there's some moisture in the ground. Yeah, and that's you, a pretty good day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. You know, going back to your your like a lion track in the snow. Mm-hmm. I had a guy use a good analogy, and I like analogies like yours earlier. Uh, he told me that, uh, you know, a, a these dogs can trail lines in the snow that are sometimes days old. Right. Pretty, you know, they can smell it. And he said it's like refrigeration. You know, going back to this idea that these are particles falling off that are like organic matter, basically. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, I guess they can be vaporized in the sense they're small enough particles. But, I mean, it would be like putting something in the refrigerator and it preserves it mm-hmm. would you agree with that yeah he was like so the snow like cold like preserves that scent and heat would cause it to deteriorate dry out decompose mm-hmm. just go away yeah so you know his he was saying that you know cold kind of preserves that but right i don't know and but, it's it's you know you get scent in the bottom of a line track or bottom of a coon track or whatever track a human track it doesn't matter you know that those microorganisms are the air is going to naturally move them into the lowest points. Yeah. You know, um, it's like dust in your house. You yep. know, your your return vents are going to be full of dust. Yeah. And uh, yeah. they'll find those they'll find those low points. But yeah, it's it, it's an amazing thing. There's a couple books that I I posted on social media that they're technical reads, but anybody that's looking to understand what's going on with a with a dog's nose. Read them. Your eyes will be open. What, one, what are the books? One is called Scent and the Scenting Dog by uh, Richard Syratuck. Um And it's just a thin read, but it's highly technical. Don't recommend you trying to read it before you go into bed because you'll read about half a page and fall asleep. It'll take you a year to read it. Okay. Uh, the other one is called Scent uh, by Persall. And that's kind of a big picture type thing where it really – really explains the physiology and and it's got a lot of pictures which are good for me pictures yep yeah (laughs) nice big pictures so uh you can 
Two two dry reads, but but definitely beneficial to understanding yeah. environment effects and different things on scent. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Um, hey, tell me about the Housing XP podcast. We've got uh, we you guys have you guys have produced how many episodes now? Uh, we're going to be releasing number eighteen, I believe, a week from Monday. Okay, yeah. So just tell me a little bit about it and. Yeah, the Houndsman XP podcast was uh, was something that Steve Fielder and I have developed together. Uh, we're trying to showcase XP stands for extreme performance. Yeah, and we're trying to showcase. You do realize that the word extreme is spelled with an E, right? I do, but for marketing purposes, <laughs> it starts with an X. So I had, I had uh, to. I yeah, had to. I'm no sorry. problem. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah. The EP podcast. Houndsman yeah. EP. Yeah, that doesn't, doesn't, no, it doesn't have a ring to it. No. How are you going to market that? I bet Steve Fielder's the one that came up with that. He's a he's a marketing genius, right? Um, Long pause. We had to have a few <laughs> conversations about the name, but I actually came up with the name. I'm joking. Yeah, I'm totally right. joking. This was sar- this is sarcasm against Steve. Steve Steve's a great, great Steve guy. Steve is a marketing genius. You know, I give Steve a hard time. I'm starting to give Steve a hard time on a few things. Yeah. I think he appreciates it. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He likes the attention. And, uh, but so I had the passion to do it and understood the, um, I'm really concerned about the future of hound sports in the United yeah. States. And um, nobody is talking about how we're going to save this thing. And hunting in general is under fire across the board. And that's why we started the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance. And, you know, Steve's been involved in several fights in, over, his, over his years with the registries on everything from tethering legislation to out-and-out bans on, on pursuit of certain game animals with hounds. So we both got experience there. Um, but Steve and I have known each other for, for several years. We walk, worked on on several projects together that um, uh, for the Plot Dogs Plot Dogs Championship and, and just a lot of – so we knew we could, I, we could work together. You yeah. know, if, if it wasn't for Steve, Steve knows everybody. Steve knows uh, he's got a lot of life experience with hounds, and he's a, he's a recognizable name. He's like um, – you know, to, to – He's just a well-known guy in, in the hound sports, and he has a knack for being able – if he meets – if he was here and he was meeting you today, 10 years from now, Steve Fielder would remember the Bear Hunting Magazine T-shirt you were wearing, the blue jeans, and your boots. You know, he just ha- – he has an incredible memory for detail, and he's yeah. a great storyteller. And uh, so I needed somebody um, like that for me to be successful – and he needed somebody like me because Steve's retired, you yeah. know. He's joked about it on the podcast before. You're working me too hard, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Steve still has a, a deep passion for hounds and hound sports and stuff. Yeah. And, and we're just trying to bring, bring a message, showcasing the most extreme houndsmen. We're, we wanna, we're, we're talking about things um, for hound nutrition. If you get on the web, and and you look at at healthcare, veterinarian care for dogs. There's all kinds of homebrew vet care stuff going on. So we actually put a a real life veterinarian who's a hound. Yeah, that was a good episode. And and talked about some technical things about hounds. You know. Yeah. Um, 
So we're just trying to get a, a, a – we want to be entertaining. We want to be informative. So our job is to preserve, protect, and promote hound sports. Yeah. So you are producing a weekly podcast. Yep. And it's anywhere from hound breeders for big game hunting, coon dogs, veterinarians, uh, outfitters. Right. Anybody that's involved in the dog sports is is fair game to be on the podcast. Yeah. And uh, I'll say that, uh, you know, you kind of get a idea on some of these podcasts of, of how they're being received by how many reviews they have on iTunes. Mm-hmm. You can You can almost look at that and like tell quite a bit about a podcast if people are engaged enough to go and write a review yeah and you guys have a, a, well over a hundred reviews right now which for a new podcast is great yeah we're doing we're doing very well we're our fans have been very engaged yeah. uh they've been hungry for a for a podcast that that talks about dedicated. their passions yes and uh you know we get messages that say when are you going to do something on running dogs or when are you going to do something on this and and we try to take in a lot of different genres of of hound hunting but the most important thing to remember it doesn't matter if if a guy's chasing deer with his hounds in virginia or i'm chasing coons with my hounds in the in the upper midwest the common thread there is houndsman you know being passionate about hounds and hound hunting yeah and and we want to we want to set the stage we want to uh houndsmen haven't been good about self-promotion you yeah. know and and so it's a it's We've the got low, a pr problem yeah it's the low-hanging fruit on the on the tree right now so there needs to be work up and down the chain there um you know your your deer your deer hunters your ungulates big game hunters need to realize that if the antis are successful of taking away hound hunting and bear baiting that their sport's next. Truly you know, is. They're just working their way up the chain. So that's why we need the support of the, the like Absolutely. your dad from, you know, a, yeah. a, a accomplished deer hunter. Yeah, exactly. So uh, what we've been saying, Chris, is we've been using the hashtag guard the gate. And the idea is that bear hunting and, and we could incorporate hound hunting is the gate for the anti-hunting community to enter into our sphere. Yeah. It is the low hanging fruit, and we've and and what you're doing and what we're doing is we're creating we're creating a new narrative for hound hunting, and we're not ashamed of it. And this is a ancient and honorable thing that we're a part of in modern times, and we got nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, and we and, and it's a it's a scientific management tool. It's a it's a tradition. It's a it's a sound. It's a sound sport, an effective way to gather uh, wildlife-related commodities for for eating and for having bear hides and right. Uh, you know, so we, you know, I heard somebody say yesterday, a guy in the hound community that I respect, and he said, when people begin to be, uh, how did he say it? How did he say it? He said, he said, basically, when people begin to be persecuted, you, if, you, if you back down, the persecution just gets even harder. We've, we, you have to stand up, and you have to, you have to not be, I don't know. We, and that's what we're doing. We're, well, we're creating a narrative for houndsmen and, uh, and, and trying to recruit the, the support of guys that may never hound hunt. 
Because, and this is the way I say it always, is that we've got nothing left to give the anti-hunting community in 2019. They've taken everything that we can afford to give. So anything given to them at this point is a detriment to the whole of hunting. So if you're an elk hunter that lives in the West that never cares about dogs, if you're a deer hunter in the South that doesn't like people running dogs, I mean, you're going to just have to get over it if really you want to support the macro movement of modern hunting in in modern times. And, right. uh, and so that's where our message is, hey, let's come together. Well, because we're, we're, we are the, it's not like two sides. It's not like you're a hound hunter and you're not a big game hunter. I mean, you're a deer hunter and you're, right. I mean, you're doing all that stuff too. Right. So it's just. And, and the thing that we want to do for the hound community is, inspire them to to build effective state organizations yeah um, and do that in a way where they can go to natural resources committee meetings and and talk intelligently about why hound hunting is important or why hunting in general is important right um, and right now you know just because your grandpa hunted and um it's just not it's not important you know that's not yeah. going to cut it you got to be able to talk about the north american model for wildlife conservation right you need to be able to talk about um it's like the the hunt that i'm returning from uh sportsman for heroes yeah you know we're taking america's heroes to the mountains and giving them an opportunity uh not to kill an animal you know you see a you see a transformation from the time these guys get in camp to the time that they leave that we have one veteran in camp that was, uh, he told me, he's like, I was at the low point in my life. And we got him away from all of that through that organization. So now you can, you have something that's that's legitimate. Why is hound hunting important? We're taking veterans hunting. Why is hound hunting important? Because houndsmen have raised several million dollars for St. Jude's Children's Hospital to yeah. fight leukemia. Who's going to say no to that? You know, yeah. just because... Uh, you know, us being able to sit there and say, well, we've been doing it for 2000 years. Yeah. It's not good enough anymore. Is no, it? no, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to give politicians something that they can't say no to. Yeah. Yeah. The bureaucrats. That's right. Yep. Well, Hey, I appreciate what you guys are doing over there and, uh, and it's a worthy cause and, and you guys are doing good. I but. appreciate it, Clay. You've been a big help to us too. I just want to tell every all your fans that you know when we were getting started, I bugged you, and and uh, I appreciate your assistance yeah. in getting us rolling. Well, no, we we need guys like you guys in this in this in this sphere for sure. Yeah, but man, we're coming up on. Uh, we've been rolling for an hour, Chris. Wow. We're rolling for an That's hour. That's the thing. You get, you know, you contact guests and you tell them how long you're going to talk to them. It's like we're going to talk for a whole hour, it's, and then bang, yeah. you know, they're like, "Well, really? Do you have any closing thoughts?" I'll just, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to, you can go onto i the Apple Podcast or any podcast venue and subscribe to the the Houndsman XP podcast. We do have um, any subscriptions. That that's kind of what drives the market uh, and the success of podcasting. Uh, to be able to go out and, and uh, give your sponsors something that they can, some data. So that's always beneficial. And, and uh, you can find us on social media, 
at uh, yeah. Houndsman XP Podcast and right on. jump on board. Even if even if you're not a hound hunter, you know, find out what it's about. Educate yourself. Don't make yeah. don't make assumptions. Um, my personal before I started watching Bear Horizons, I had zero interest in hunting black bear over bait. But the way you delivered the message and the way that that it was presented, it's like, nah, that looks, you know, I might want to try that. I might want to do that. Yeah. Gave me a whole new perspective on yeah. on bait hunting. Yeah, right on. Well, I hope this was a podcast listener that's been calling our phone the last three minutes. I don't know if people could hear that, but the phone's been ringing off the hook. So yeah. if that was you, if you're listening to this podcast and that was you that called, we're sorry. We didn't pick up. <laughs> Oh, no, thanks thanks for coming, Chris. And, uh, man, I hope you have a safe travel back home. Yep. But, uh, hey, keep the wild places wild because that's where the bears live. You follow your hounds and I'll follow mine. That's right. <laughs>